you were telling me about a dream you had. What what was this dream, Jake? Oh yeah, I was. I I we took our little break, and when uh when I was feeling like you know we didn't set a date for when we were gonna come back. We were just like we're gonna take a break, and when we come back, we're gonna do mm-hmm. uh, X and Pearl. And I had a dream a few nights ago that I was just gored in the stomach by Pearl with a pitchfork, <laughs> and I was like, I think that's a sign that we need to talk about Pearl because uh, otherwise her spirit won't let me rest. Yes, her her spirit is demanding this episode be made. Ugh, and we're we're just you know we are at her service. I guess we have to do what Pearl wants. <laughs> uh, yes, we must obey Pearl. We must obey Mia Goth. <laughs> All right, let's roll the music. podcast at the intersection of queerness and horror. I'm Shannon. And I'm Jake. And this week on the Skeleton Closet podcast, we've got a double feature. This is only the second time we've ever done this, so forgive us if it's a long episode, but we'll be covering, um, in my opinion, two of the best movies of 2022, hands down. Uh, X and Pearl, both uh, directed and written by Ty West and starring Mia Goth. And Mia Goth also got co-writer credit on Pearl. So, um, this, this is a really exciting set of movies to me. This is like, these movies are exactly in my niche. I truly love everything about them both. Oh, yeah, no, like, I was gonna say, they both have very different feels, but, like, somehow they couple together so nicely. Like, I feel like X very much felt like the Texas Chainsaw Massacre to me, and Pearl... Pearl Pearl was a movie unlike one I've ever seen before. Like, it had this very, like, upbeat kind of horror to it. Yeah, it felt like a weird mashup of, like, some kind of slasher movie and then, like, um, Wizard of Oz or something like that. Like, it was... Yeah! It was really, like, whimsical and fantastical and, like, really brightly colored um, they actually originally wanted to shoot it in black and white, and then, and like the oh. studio wasn't really into it. They said like no, and um, Mia Goth and Ty West talked about it, and they said you know like a black and white horror movie made in the in the current era is kind of its own thing, and we want to do something different and unique with this one. So they decided to go the opposite way and make it as vibrant and colorful as possible. Um, and that was yeah. absolutely, like, the right choice. It's rare that you I find myself saying, like, no, the studio made the right call on that one. But they totally did. This was this it just beautiful in every way. Yeah, it was... Be- and, like, it really makes the blood pop, which, like, was a very <laughs> fun part of it. The blood really does pop. You can tell how much uh, attention they paid to the the vibrancy of color in this. Um, I read somewhere that they had like 57 swatches of red for the color of the barn. Uh, Oh my God. (laughs) Yeah. They really paid a lot of attention to, um, to the colors that, that, you know, that, that would take up every frame, Uh, every frame of a painting, as they say. Um, And we'll, Throughout we throughout this episode, we're definitely going to be bouncing back and forth between talking about the two movies, and it so it it sort of bears uh, an explanation as to what's going on here. So the movie X uh, came out in twenty twenty two, and it was 
Um, they they build it as like a sex slasher, which sort of I mm. guess creating its own um, little mini micro genre. And uh, while so they were they were filming on location in New Zealand, and while they were getting ready to film, there was a, a mandatory two week quarantine for uh, for filming in New Zealand. And so Ty mm. West, the director, and Mia Goth, the star. Uh, got together and they started doing Zoom sessions where they were building out the character of Pearl, who was the the killer in X. And uh, during this time when they were doing these Zoom sessions, they decided to come up with a backstory for Pearl to sort of flesh her out. And over that two-week quarantine, that story sort of fleshed out and became its own movie. And they decided to make it uh, and shot them back to back. So they shot X and then shot Pearl immediately after. And that's how the movie came together. Yeah, it didn't... They... They made X without having Pearl in mind, and then it just sort of... Really? Yeah, it, it all sort of came together, uh, and they shot it in secret right after they finished shooting X, and then um, sort of surprised announced it right after the premiere of X. Um, That's so, amazing. Yeah, it's really like one of the more unique... Uh, stories I've ever seen and uh, I made a note to mention it before the end of the episode but there's going to be a sequel as well which I think we'll definitely have to cover um, yeah so, yeah there's there's X and then there's the prequel called Pearl and the sequel it looks like is either going to be called uh, XXX or Maxine with three X's in it uh, it's not quite yes. clear what the official title will be um, but yeah I'm, I'm really excited to get into a proper discussion of these movies, but uh, do we want to start with the summaries before we get into it? Yeah, I mean, I guess we've got our overall thoughts. Like, I oh, love true. the movies. Yeah. Oh my god, me too. And, like, these movies have so much to say. I often say, like, you know, sometimes when I watch a piece of media that I don't really like, but I don't mm-hmm. find it, like, you know, straight-up offensive, I'll say, like, yeah, uh, you know... I, it wasn't for me, but I'm really glad that it exists for the people that, you know, that it, it clicks on every level. And for me, these are those things. Like, these movies are not incredibly highly rated, um, but there's a subset of people who adore them. And I am I am right in that niche. Like, it feels like... Yeah. It feels like these movies were made for me. They are, like... They are beautifully made artistically, in my opinion. The performances are stunning. The the like cinematography is stunning, and it's like so sociologically interesting to me the way that like we have two different you know uh, periods in time and we revisit the same themes at two different times in, in 1918 mm. and 1979. Um, and just yeah, like everything about these movies really like scratches every itch for me. What about you? What's your thoughts? I I absolutely agree. I love how it's two different time periods and like you marry the, between those um with like the same themes. I love that. I I really enjoyed X and X really surprised me. Um Pearl I went to go see in theater, so I saw Pearl first and then mm. watched X and then watched Pearl again and <laughs> it really like just the way they mirror some of the scenes between the two movies is fantastic. Like the one that really strikes me is the like uh, farmer's daughter scene where like hmm. a Maxine is dressed up in the exact same way that Pearl is dressed up like in her movie. And I, I just loved like seeing the interplay between these two films. I thought it, 
It was brilliant. I I never I never would have guessed that Pearl like wasn't written before X. Like I definitely I definitely thought I'm like, oh okay, so they they wrote Pearl and then they wrote X and they just decided to release X first. Cool. But no, apparently not. And I I think they did a phenomenal job. And like and, and the way that like you said, the movies work together so well, but they're still so different, right? Like they they carry yeah, entirely they're totally different, different tones. Yeah, yeah. Um, Mia Goth's performance too. Like it, I think it needs to be said before anything else. Holy shit! Like this girl is really really good. Um, She's damn good. I would say she plays you know two and a half different characters because she is Maxine and she is Pearl, uh, and she's both the old and young version of Pearl. Um, and yes. I, I did not realize upon my first viewing of X that she was also Pearl. Um, and mm-hmm. these, these scenes with Maxine and, and, you know, old lady Pearl talking to each other, like that's her acting with herself. That's, I, I didn't know that that was her in prosthetics. She's completely wow. unrecognizable, uh, as Pearl, both, both in her, you know, appearance and her voice. Uh, and, and mm-hmm. watching it again, knowing that it's her, you just... It's on. It's kind of unbelievable, honestly. She's phenomenal. It truly, absolutely phenomenal. Um, I'll go ahead and start with a summary of X, and uh, you know, All we right. we did it this way because X was the first one to be released. But of course, Pearl takes place sixty-one years earlier. Um, and so, yeah, I I took notes, you know, summarizing X uh, as I was watching it. So I wrote this one in bullet point form. So it might be a little bit more stilted than usual. But bear with us here. You know, we're back from our break. We're we're trying new things. We we uh, Ooh, we yeah. like to mix it up over here at Skeleton Closet sometimes. <laughs> All right, X. 2022. We open on several police cars pulling up to a Texas farmhouse. It's 1979, and the place is covered in blood, and many, many bodies are covered in sheets. Uh, a house in the TV... Pardon me. In the house, a TV is left on. Uh, a preacher man is on the television, telling a house full of corpses that young sex fiends will seduce your children into a life of sin. 24 hours earlier, Maxine Minx is hoovering schneef in the green room of a strip club called Bayou Burlesque. Uh, We're introduced to Wayne, her boyfriend and director, who tells her she's special and there's no one like her. She tells herself in the mirror that she is a fucking sex symbol and then hops in a van with the rest of her crew. They're on their way to shoot a low-budget porn film in the Texas countryside. Uh, We then meet the rest of the crew in the van. Uh, There's Bobby Lynn, a confident blonde and the star of the movie. There's Jackson, the movie's main uh, male talent, uh, portrayed by Kid Cudi. There's RJ, the cinematographer, and Lorraine, RJ's girlfriend and assistant. She's a little younger than the rest of the crew and is played by Janet Ortega, who is really turning out to be somewhat of a scream queen. She's uh, she's in this. Yeah. She's in You on Netflix, which is which is pretty good. It's kind of hit and miss, but she's really good in it. And she's Wednesday Adams now as well. Yeah, I was going to say I recognized her almost immediately. She's uh she's very very good. I feel like she's um yeah, I, she's definitely got like a a career in horror ahead of her <laughs> with with a few big yes. credits to her name already. She's only 20. Um she's she's What? Yeah. Um she's going to Yeah, she's she new on the scene. Yeah. Um at the gas station, Maxine tells Wayne she needs to be famous. They stop at this, like, roadside gas station, which is eerily reminiscent of the gas station that they stop in in the beginning of uh, Texas Chainsaw Massacre, I yeah. thought. 
Yeah, exactly. <laughs> um, we're, we're in a similar like place and time as Texas Chainsaw Massacre, so those references feel pretty on purpose. Um, and yes. Wayne reassures Maxine that she's got that X factor. Roll credits. Um, Bobby Lynn... <laughs> Uh, while they're stopped uh, at the gas station, they start filming some of their some of their B-roll footage. Uh, Bobby Lynn gives some interesting directing advice to RJ. Uh, and inside the gas station, there's a TV blaring with the same preacher man um, that we saw at in the empty house. The gang arrives at their shooting spot, uh, an aging, decrepit farmhouse, which is managed by a man named Howard, uh, who holds Wayne at gunpoint as soon as he walks up to the door. He sort of forgot that Wayne had arranged to stay in their uh, guest house, bunkhouse across the across the field. Um, but they quickly resolve this difference, and as the crew unloads their gear, Maxine notices an old woman staring at them through the upstairs window. Um, kind of unsettling. Um Howard comes to settle up with Wayne. He's sort of bothered that there's so many other people here that he didn't tell him about. Wayne, mm-hmm. of course, gives him a little extra cash to sweeten the pot. Uh, Howard sort of has an uncomfortably long stare at Maxine. Um, but once he's sort of out of the picture, the gang gets to filming. And <laughs> the, we spend a lot of screen time on just some, like, real, you know, 70s-looking pornography, <laughs> complete with, like... Oh, Yeah overacting and and wailing and screaming and carrying on um yeah it it, it, it's a lot the movie is definitely the sex slasher that they that they promised us um oh definitely yeah uh maxine decides to go for a skinny dip down by the river uh and the old woman sort of watches her from the bushes unbeknownst to her an alligator chases her but she she gets out of the way before that uh before that comes to pass um Wayne also is getting really excited about the movie that they're filming and at one point invites RJ to just sort of feel how hard he's getting. <laughs> he just kind of grabs RJ's <laughs> hand and, and slaps it on there, which is not important to the plot at all. But I figured for the purposes of this podcast, you know, that that qualifies as a queer scene, I think. that Yes, <laughs> it does. All right. We got some gay. Yeah, this movie uh, is it not in need of a could have been gayer segment because... That happened, and I, I don't know. There's some stuff later on that happens too. Um, yeah, yeah, there is. Yeah. Um, Pearl uh, waves to Maxine as she's coming back from the river, seemingly inviting her up to the house. Uh, the two share a glass of lemonade as the rest of the crew shoot a scene about Jackson and Bobby Lynn sharing a glass of lemonade and fucking. Um, Pearl uses about how beautiful she used to be and how beautiful Maxine is now. Uh, Maxine finally goes and shoots her scene after, you know, leaving Pearl. She didn't, Pearl's not in the room while that happens. Um, Maxine finally shoots her scene and Pearl watches through a window. Uh, she then tries to seduce Howard, but he tells her that he can't because his heart is no longer strong enough uh, to sustain coitus. Um, Lorraine, meanwhile, is inspired by Maxine's performance. Uh, everyone present seems to be, like, really thrilled with the work that Maxine puts in, in, in her farmer's daughter mm-hmm. scene. Um, Lorraine is inspired by Maxine's performance, Bobby Lynn's rendition of Landslide, and the rest of the gang's musing is about sex, and decides she wants to be in the movie, which was not the original plan. Uh, RJ resists, but Wayne advises him that it isn't wise to try to stop her. They go through with the scene, and RJ goes off to cry in the shower. He then decides to take the van and leave, stranding the rest of the gang, uh, but Pearl stands in his way. 
She tries to seduce him, but he rebuffs her, so she stabs him in the neck with a kitchen knife. He collapses, and Pearl stabs him several more times, splattering the headlights of the van as Don't Fear the Reaper plays on the radio. Lorraine wakes up. I did and love that moment. That was really good, and like the blood coating the headlights, and then like everything being lit red for the rest of the scene. Yeah. Some people mentioned, by the way, that the the shower scene followed immediately by the stabbing can be seen as an homage to Psycho, which was mentioned, which was a movie mentioned by name earlier on. Um, So it really does feel like there's a ton of horror movie homages happening throughout this movie, um, which is really cool to see. Yeah, Uh, they're very artfully done. Yeah. And like... Once that was pointed out, again, on a second viewing, like, especially the shower scene where he's shot from overhead, I'm like, yeah, that's a mirror shot mm-hmm. to some of the stuff in in Psycho, which is, um, wow, really great stuff. <laughs> um, mm-hmm. Psycho's definitely a movie that's, like, controversial, especially within this this community, and I know you and I have talked about it off mic, but... Um, oh, yeah. It, like... They, they talk about it in this movie, but the MacGuffin, like, side plot, the way it changes halfway through, it is definitely, like, a staple movie in, in horror lore, for sure. Um, mm-hmm. The way the cars are stashed in the bog, too, by the way, feels definitely, like, directly referential to Psycho. Oh, see, I, I've only watched the first part of Psycho, so I missed that reference. Interesting. I think I think we should cover Psycho someday on the podcast. I, I feel like it'll be I, I agree. Right for conversation. Um anywho, Lorraine wakes up and enlists Wayne to help look for RJ. Uh Wayne looks in the barn wearing nothing but his tidy whities and unfortunately steps on a nail, which seems Ooh, pretty deliberately placed. That scene was so hard for me to watch because you see the nail, you see him walking toward it, and you're like, don't. Don't step on the nail. Don't do it. Don't do it. And then he does. And you're like, fuck, motherfucker. You know what? That scene, I will say, speaking of references to other horror movies, that scene seemed like with the nail sticking up and you knowing that he's about to step on it, that felt directly referential to another horror movie, um, which is Home Alone. uh, Because the exact same thing happens in Home Alone. (laughs) He sets, uh, Kevin McAllister sets trap for the wet bandits. Have you, yeah. have Have you not watched Home Alone? I haven't seen it in ages. Oh, okay. No, there is a scene in Home Alone where he ste- he sets a trap exactly like that. It's a nail sticking up through um, through the stairs coming up from the basement. And one of the bandits oh steps on the nail. And it is, like, I'm not kidding, exactly as tense and gory as this scene was. Um, yeah. No, the... I've talked with several people who agree agree that the nail scene in Home Alone is straight up uncalled for. Uh, And I think it qualifies it as a horror movie. Um, So, uh, yeah. But anyway, we're talking about Wayne. Wayne steps on that (laughs) nail. Uh, He he's looking for RJ. He steps on a nail. He sees some movement through some knot holes in the barn boards. And when he sticks his eye up to the hole, of course, as we all knew what happened, a pitchfork comes through the Mm -hmm. other side. Um, Pearl steps around to the door of the barn and stabs him several more times. Uh, Howard tells Lorraine to go look for Pearl in the basement since he's worried that she might fall and break her hip, and then he locks her in there. Um, She finds an unfamiliar dead man down there, naked and hung from the ceiling by his wrists. Jackson wakes up in the night and sees Howard walking around with a flashlight outside. He tells Jackson that Pearl gets confused, and he's out looking for her. Jackson agrees to help find her, and Pearl enters the guest house as he leaves. She takes her clothes off and gets into bed with Maxine, kissing and caressing the skin of her back. 
Um, more queer stuff. So again, this movie does not mean yes. it could have been gayer. <laughs> um, <laughs> Howard accuses Jackson of trying to entice Pearl and shoots him point blank with his shotgun in the chest. Maxine wakes up to Pearl in bed with her and screams, waking Bobby Lynn. Um, Pearl just sort of calmly exits the guest house. Um, (laughs) Lorraine tries to break out of the basement with a hatchet, but Howard breaks her hand with the butt of his shotgun. He turns on the TV and a televangelism program drowns out her screams. Uh, Bobby Lynn goes looking for Jackson at all and finds Pearl standing by the river. Uh, she tries to cover her up and, and take her inside, but Pearl slaps her and calls her a whore and pushes her in the river where an alligator grabs her head and death rolls her. H- Howard joins her and asks if Bobby Lynn was the one, to which Pearl replies that she doesn't like blondes. Howard and Pearl mm. return to the guest house to look for Maxine, and it is revealed that Howard helps to kidnap people so that Pearl can use them for sexual pleasure. Um, they begin to have sex while Maxine hides under the bed. Pearl reassures Howard that his heart can take the strain of coitus, and Maxine escapes as they bone. Uh, We're getting to the end of the movie. Maxine finds RJ's body and hears Lorraine screaming. She grabs Wayne's gun from the van and frees Lorraine. Uh, Lorraine blames Maxine for bringing her here and runs out of the house, and Howard shoots her on the front doorstep. As he moves to drag away Lorraine's body, a rigor mortis spasm startles him and causes him to have a heart attack. Maxine holds Pearl at gunpoint and says, along with the televangelist, that she will not accept a life she does not deserve. Pearl grabs the shotgun and fires at Maxine, but misses as the kickback flings her out onto the front lawn, breaking her hip. Maxine gets in the van, backs over Pearl's head, which splatters really just (laughs) tremendously, uh, and Maxine drives off alone. On the TV in the empty house, the televangelist reveals to his audience that his daughter Maxine was seduced into a life of sin by sexual deviants. He and his congregation pray that she will return home to him. The police, struggling to understand what happened, find RJ's video camera. The sheriff says that judging by the looks of things, the camera must have must contain one fucked up horror picture. Roll credits. That felt like and a like a CSI Miami moment. <laughs> the way he delivered yeah, that. Yeah, it really does. <laughs> One fucked up horror picture, which is exactly what the movie is. Like, it is a fucked up horror picture, and it is fantastically done. I feel like with the with the lore of, like, how movies were made back in this time, too, like, the, um, the, the movie that does result out of this, like, the, because it's, you know, unedited shots of a porn movie that they were attempting to make, and just knowing that... Mm-hmm basically everyone on the screen except for Maxine is dead. Like that, that seems like a, you know, one of those cursed mythical movies from the seventies that you hear about like cannibal Holocaust or something like that. Oh yes. Yes, yes, yes. Um, yeah, truly loved this movie. Like it is all about, I mean, we'll talk about the themes later on. Um, I guess we will get to summarizing Pearl first, but like, it has a whole lot to say about like repression and sexuality and aging. And Mm -hmm. um, like I said, I think it's a really sociologically interesting movie because it talks about a lot of really um, relevant social themes, but then the movie Pearl revisits some of those things in with a 60 year time gap in the middle, um, which is really fun. Yeah, so to summarize Pearl, which takes place back in 1918, Mm -hmm. when Pearl was a young woman. So, 
Pearl is a young woman living with her parents on a farm while her husband is fighting in the First World War. Because of the war, all the farmhands are gone and Pearl needs to do chores on the farm. She feeds the animals and dances while she works and talks to the animals about how she's going to become famous. In addition to tending the farm animals, Pearl feeds an alligator living in the lake on the farm. Pearl goes into town to buy her father's medication, liquid morphine, and goes to the movies. After her movie, Pearl lingers outside and meets the projectionist as he comes out on a smoke break. He cuts her out a piece of film to remember the movie by. On the way home, though, Pearl loses the piece of film and chases it into the farmer's field. She happens upon a scarecrow and dances with it and then has mock sex with it. I love that she, like, decides to climb up onto the post where the scarecrow is nailed to, haul it down, dance around with it for, like, five minutes, and then she climbs on top of it and then screams at the thing that she's married. (laughs) (laughs) This is the point in the movie. Yeah, I love that. Like, maybe a little before this, too, because she did kill a goose before this. I'm starting to have the thought, like, okay, this girl is, like, we're starting the movie, and she is already, like, kind of cracked. Like, there's something up with Pearl. Yeah, she's she's a strange one. She's a very strange girl. So, the next day, Pearl's sister-in-law, Mitzi, comes to visit. They bring a suckling pig, but Pearl's mother refuses the charity and leaves the pig on the porch to rot. Mitzi tells Pearl about a dancing chorus line audition happening later in the week, and the two make plans to go. That evening, Pearl sneaks out of the house and goes to town. She visits the projectionist, who shows her a smut film he'd picked up while serving in France. And I love how this connects back to X, because RJ had said, he's like, oh, I'm gonna make a film like one of those French ones, and... A French porn film is what Pearl watches. Yeah, the the whole connection to Europe between these two movies is really interesting because, like you said, like Howard is off serving in World War One at this point too, and it's established that like he's in Europe and probably will never want to go back. And um, so, like, yeah, France like plays a pretty large part in both of these two movies, which is odd. Um, one one thing that's interesting as well is like the smut film that he shows her. They were they were known as stag films back then. Um, and it's actual oh. footage from a real stag film from 1915. Um, really? Yeah, that's that was completely authentic, the film that they showed us there. Wow, that makes it so much more interesting. <laughs> it really does. There's a whole like controversy on who directed it. Like two different people claim to have directed that movie, but it's I think it's one of those Ooh. things that just sort of gets lost to the ether back then because it wasn't like they were keeping great note of those things. Those things just existed on film, right? Um, pretty pretty underground productions. Wow. So, the following evening at dinner, Pearl and her mother have an argument that ends in them hitting one another and her mother's skirt catching on fire. As Pearl's mother is engulfed in flames, Pearl puts them out with the hot vegetable water and then drags her mother down to the cellar and leaves her there. Going out in the pouring rain, Pearl goes to the projectionist and immediately kisses him. She stays the night with the projectionist, and in the morning, he drives her home. She invites him in, and he begins seeing a different side to Pearl. When he tries to leave and goes cold on her, Pearl freaks out and begins yelling at the projectionist. As he finally gets in his car to go, Pearl uses a pitchfork to stab him repeatedly, 
dragging him out of his car and leaving him dead on the lawn. Before going to her dance audition, Pearl kills her father and sends the projectionist and his car into the lake. Pearl goes to her audition and meets up with Mitzi. The girls sit together in line as their wait to be called. Pearl goes first and dances her heart out, but she gets rejected because they want someone younger and blonde. Mm -hmm. Crying outside, Mitzi offers to give Pearl a ride home. Back home, Mitzi and Pearl sit inside to have a chat, and Pearl confesses to adultery and to murder. After their chat, which is a long dialogue by Pearl, after their chat, Pearl deduces that Mitzi got the part in the chorus line and wishes her well. But as Mitzi goes to leave, Pearl picks up an axe and chases Mitzi down the lane and kills her. Pearl chops up Mitzi's body and feeds her to the alligator in the lake. She then sets the dinner table with her dead parents and the rotting pig. A few days later, Howard arrives home from the war and is greeted by this dining table of death and decay. He sees Pearl and she welcomes her husband home with a smile. And then the credits roll on the most disturbing smile I have ever seen. Yeah, the, the that shot, it's like one really, really long shot of Mia Goth smiling into the camera. It goes on for about two minutes and um like as she's doing it you can see like it becomes more and more like exaggerated and desperate and tears start rolling down her face and like i backed up and watched it the first time i saw it because her eyes literally mm -hmm. go red like blood vessels in her eyes are bursting <laughs> because she's trying to maintain like the severity of this smile for so long um wow. i guess yeah and i guess like before they did it like it's Ty West just didn't call cut. Like, she didn't know that this would oh, be something wow. that she'd be doing for that long. And you can see her kind of, like, shake her head because she's getting kind of impatient. And she wants him to call cut. And he decides to just see how long she'll hold it. Um, so that was another wow. part of the movie that wasn't planned. But it really, like... It really sends you home with, like, a disturbing, th like, figure in your mind. And okay, a couple of things about the death of Mitzi. Like, first of all, you mentioned that monologue that that Pearl goes on. That one's about seven mm. minutes long, and it takes you through oh her my entire God. thought process. Uh, yeah, it is, and it takes you through her entire thought process about like how she started off killing animals that were smaller than her and that wouldn't feel anything, and then she like moved on to killing her parents and and how she wished she hadn't killed her dad, who is like helpless and in a wheelchair and and like unable to to speak um and it is it, i don't know it just feels like the writing is really strong and the acting of course is really strong throughout that entire monologue yes and then the second thing is through the when mitzi dies like when pearl chases her down the laneway with an axe it's perhaps one of the worst character uh, one of the worst cases of like horror movie victim syndrome i've ever seen where she just forgets how to run in a straight line and stumbles and it, you know yeah, when someone's literally chasing you with falls. an axe i'm yeah. like you can't run any stronger than this <laughs> you can't run any faster than this what are you doing <laughs> <laughs> and where was her car that's what i was wondering about because mitzi had a car like, she drove My, Pearl home, so, like, she didn't make it to her car. I did, you know, and I didn't see the car, and... But my my guess is that she knew she didn't have time to get in the car and start get it started up. And, like, I don't know if you had to crank cars at that mm. time, but uh, my guess is yeah. she knew she didn't have time to get it started up. So she just figured she was better off on foot. But she 
can't really she didn't really run she sort of trotted she didn't do a very good job yeah. of trying to stay alive i'll say that um no, she, she was another one too love oh go on oh sorry well, I was just going to say, like, they, she was another actor that I'm like, can we can we please get a wellness check on that actor? Because uh, <laughs> they showed Pearl, like, chopping her up and, like, specifically, like, the axe, like, separating her head from her body. Um, yeah. And, like, blood pouring out of the neck stump. And I was like, that looks w- so good if that's, like, just a, like, a mannequin or a doll of her. Um, can we please make sure that she's actually still alive? And I felt the same way about, um, <laughs> I, I, I felt the same way about Bobby Lynn when the alligator grabbed her. I was like, that looks a yeah. whole lot like a human head being grabbed by an alligator and death rolled. I don't know. <laughs> yeah, I agree. It looks like we're very worried about the blondes in these movies. Yeah, well, and that that's a recurring theme, right? And we, we mentioned, like, the connections between the two movies. Like, Pearl says, as an old woman, that uh, she says to Howard, you know, I don't like blondes. And it seems, you know, through watching Pearl, that it's because she got passed over for Mitzi because she was younger and yes. blonder. Specifically, like, the director told her that uh, at the audition, which is, uh, I love it. There's a lot to love. Yeah, there is. So, I mean, I want to get into talking about some of the themes that are in the movie because the movies, uh, it kind of feels like they're two parts to the same story, but they're, they're also such distinct pieces. Mm-hmm. Um, but one of the things, like specifically within Pearl, is this theme of plague and war and like living in turbulent times. And in a lot of ways, it really feels like Pearl is a movie about right now, even though it's like, it, you know, it's literally yeah. about 1918. But it feels like it's really got to say a lot about the current state of, like, pandemic social life um, through talking about the Spanish flu. Or I know that there's a different name for it now. We're not supposed to call it the Spanish flu anymore for very good reasons. But I forget what that name is, so forgive me. Um, it, it really feels like it has a lot to say about right now. And it, it feels like living in turbulent times uh, is, like, a direct cause of Pearl's repression and, and the way that she behaves. Yeah, it 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 really struck me that like the themes that they're talking about in the movie Pearl about like the isolation that they're feeling, you know, not going out for weeks at a time to avoid getting the sickness, it really does speak to that plague and how Pearl literally wears a mask when she goes into town to avoid getting the germs. Like it's so applicable to today's society and like it really highlights that parallel with the early 20th century. Like we're in the early 21st century. Now it like we were in pandemic and plague times now, but so were we back in like a hundred years ago, which is kind of surprising. You wouldn't expect to have that kind of parallel between different centuries, but it is like they're worried about germs. They're worried about sickness spreading. And I think, I think, think there's also this idea of plague that comes out in um in x but instead of talking about you know like a a physical plague and like an influenza it's more so this plague of sexuality that's coming Mm. up which is what the preacher is talking about on the tv right like he's talking about this plague this sickness of perversion you know, and sexuality instead of, you know, an influenza and germs. But it's still a plague, right? 
Yeah, that's so interesting. I actually hadn't made that connection. But yeah, it's a very similar type of paranoia, um, just mm-hmm. for like very different reasons and, and obviously different like levels of validity. But yeah, like it, I think it had a lot to say about the paranoia of living in um, a time of, of disease, let's be honest. Like when, yes. um, you know, like her, uh, Pearl's mother, uh, Ruth tells her like when, you know, when you leave and go into town, like don't linger near anybody and make sure you cover your face. Um, mm-hmm. and I thought it was interesting that when she's, there's a scene where she's talking to the projectionist later where he makes a little comment where he says something like, oh, you can tar- hardly tell who anyone is with all the masks they're wearing these days. And, uh, yeah. he, he doesn't have anything straight up you know negative to say about people who wear masks or anything like that but it is just sort of like i don't know it it felt like very familiar this ache of like being someone who you know like just due to circumstances within my family and my household like uh i've had to be really careful throughout the pandemic and i'm one of the people who you know i still haven't resumed normal social activity and i've been one of the people who Mm -hmm. has always worn a mask in public and everything and um i think it was a really familiar feeling of like man some people are out there living their lives you know like some people yeah are uh they they are not wearing a mask and that's and i'm you know i'm i want to be clear that i'm not coming from a place of judgment or anything like that it's just sort of like feels like you're inside at recess a little bit sometimes these days um and it seems like that's the way that pearl's feeling like she is suffering in this way that other people are not um and I, you know, that carries on later on throughout the movie. There was also the moment when Mitzi came over when when they're coming to deliver the pig and she's dressed in like this really elegant like dress and she looks yeah. totally out of place on this humble little farm and she's got like a fox fur draped over her shoulders and she's like, oh, it's so nice to be out and wear something nice. Like I haven't been out and seen anyone in weeks with this awful germ going around. Um, yeah. And... Yeah, it just it's a very different type of social life that you have in times of sickness like this. Yeah, it's a much more isolated way of living and like going out to see people becomes this big occasion that you can get ready for. Yeah, even if you're just heading over to like a neighboring farm or something like that. Um yes, just calling over to the neighbors. Side note, like, I really liked Mitzi, like, especially on a second viewing, I was watching to see, like, is there any sort of signal that we get that Mitzi is, like, not, you know, that just that she's, like, a bad person or that she deserves any of this Mm. at all? She's straight up, like, she seems like a lovely person. There's maybe, like, a couple of comments that she makes during that where it's like, okay, maybe she's not quite aware of the level of privilege that she has compared to Pearl. Yeah. But, like, she really seems lovely. She wants to help Pearl even when it's clear that things are not going well and it's i found her like maybe one of the saddest characters in this just because she really didn't deserve what she got no and she was so close to getting out like she was so 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 close to not getting murdered like oh she was she was out the door Mm -hmm. she was fine she was doing well and it was like only then that like pearl followed her out and took up the axe and i love loved that scene where Pearl is chasing her because she's just like speed walking with the axe and this like bright red dress while Mitzi is like running away in front of her and it's very iconic 
you know, I, I didn't think about it before, but I'm just thinking about it now. There was there was a motif where Pearl keeps wearing her mother's really nice dresses, uh, which are like, mm-hmm. I think, clearly pretty old, even for the time. Um, yes. And her mom is basically like, stop dressing up in my dresses and like staring at yourself in the mirror like you have chores to do and stuff. Um, and I think it's interesting because I get the sense that Pearl has never dressed up really nice to go out somewhere, you know, looking good. Like, she kind of just yeah. does it to have, like, this weird family dinner with... Well, I, I guess to go to the audition, she wears the red dress. Um, yes. But it, it feels like that's an interesting parallel between her and Mitzi. That Pearl... It feels like this is the first time she's ever really gotten dressed up and gone out somewhere. Yeah. Like, usually for Pearl, it's just playing dress-up because she's not going to visit anyone. Like, she's not doing anything much. She has to be stuck on the farm and, like, kept on the farm. Um, uh, yeah, I mean, <laughs> there's so much more to talk about there. And we'll talk more about uh, Pearl's life on the farm and like how she feels about it. Because I've, I've got a lot to say in that regards. Um, yeah, okay, good. But I want to talk about aging as well. That's another big theme that comes up like that. And I would say this one comes mostly through X and like the difference that we yes. can see. Um, and, you know, like we've got one thing that I find interesting is this preacher, right? This televangelist who radicalizes the mm-hmm. elderly. Like that's what he does. He's sitting there on the TV being like these sex fiends and deviants are casting the world into a life of sin. And they took my daughter away from me and they'll take your kids away from you too. Um, which is like a very familiar, you know, that's been, that's been a thing for a better part of the last century, unfortunately. And, and uh, yeah, I think it was interesting how through Pearl and Howard, we can kind of, see them become old and um, impotent in, in more than one way, you know, politically and physically. And uh, this, this, this type of like impotent rage is really like wielded by both of them through their actions at the farmhouse. And mm-hmm. you, you can kind of see that reflected in the type of uh, political content that they consume. Yeah. Um. Like Wayne even says about Howard straight up, there's a line where he says, his pecker ain't been hard since before you were born. I'd, I'd probably be mad at people like us too. Because uh, they're talking about the judgment that they perceive from Howard. And uh, that was after, I think that was after he stared at Maxine, which is interesting because I wonder if you perceive yes. that, if we regard that stare as like a stare of recognition because Maxine looks exactly like Pearl did. Um, yeah. Which I um, wonder about. Yeah. But I mean, like, this, this aspect of them aging I find so interesting. And I find Pearl and Howard's relationship fascinating. Um, like mm-hmm. Pearl says, there's a quote where she's talking to Maxine and she says, back then there was nothing he wouldn't do for me. And that's the power of beauty. Um, but basically she says like back when, when she was young and beautiful and looked like Maxine did. Um, and it, it made me really wonder, like I want another movie about the time in between these two stories and specifically how Howard becomes pearl's accomplice in all this because he's a willing participant right like it's how does he go from coming home and finding this horrific scene of like these dead people around the table including his his in-laws and his sister and his wife in the middle of all of this and become a willing participant in all of these murders later on 60 years later because even at some point um howard is saying he's dragging uh, I think Lorraine's body back into the house and he's saying we need to play the smart Pearl if they're inside the house then we can claim 
that they were trespassing. Mm -hmm. So, like, clearly he's done this before, and, like, we see that with the guy who's in the basement. Yeah. Like, this is, this is a repetitive thing. Like, this has happened more than once. Like, Pearl has been killing people throughout the years. Yeah, I, like, it, it's so interesting, because I, I, uh, it, it, I think it would be easy to explain it away and say like, oh, you know, Howard comes home and he finds this horrific scene and he doesn't want to be Pearl's next victim. So he sort of just like tacitly Mm. goes along with things. But like, again, by the time it's 60 years later, he is just as violent and and, responsible as she is for all these deaths. So um, it's not like he is a, a, you know, traumatized, fearful little servant for her. Uh, he's, mm-hmm. he's right up in there. Um, and I, I thought it was interesting. We kind of get a sneak peek at his devotion, uh, through Pearl. Cause she's reading letters home from him from the war. Uh, and he says, yeah. he says, I never want to be away from you again. And he's talking about the horrors that he was witnessing over there. Uh, and, and he basically says like, he never wants to, uh, he never wants to be away from her. And he, he keeps himself sane in the trenches by thinking about returning home to her. Um, so yeah, it's, uh, I'd, I would love to see, you know, the Howard movie somehow, somewhere like maybe 20, 30 years in the middle there where we can see maybe an in-between of yeah. young and old Howard. Yeah, that would be nice because we really don't get much of young Howard other than his letters and like just him arriving home at the very end of the movie. But he is a very interesting character. Like... He said about his shotgun when he first, like, holds Wayne up and he says, oh, well, you know, I don't keep it loaded. It's just to scare people. And Wayne says the same about the revolver he keeps in his car. You know, you just have it to scare people, but you don't actually load it. Yeah. (laughs) Which we later find out is a lie. (laughs) Yes, as he shoots people straight up. Yeah. I mean, Wayne's telling the truth. And I, I found that so fun because there's, you know... Uh, Maxine picks up Wayne's gun and holds up uh, Pearl at gunpoint later on and then finds that the gun doesn't have bullets. She tries to pull the trigger, by the way. She tries to just straight up shoot Pearl, which we're always mm. begging for characters to do in horror movies. Like, you're shooting yes, a guy. Yes, we are. <laughs> and so she tries, but the gun does not have bullets, which was really nicely foreshadowed by that conversation between Wayne and Howard. Um, so we know that mm-hmm. Howard's a liar, but Wayne is not in, in that aspect. Yes. Now, okay, you um, yeah. you've brought up something that makes me curious. Okay. So, after seeing X and seeing Pearl, do you see Pearl as a bad guy? Um, I you know what? I think that lends really nicely into our next topic and on like individuality and obsession with pain, or sorry, individualism rather than individuality. I do not see Pearl as a sympathetic character at all honestly mm-hmm. i think i think her mom is completely right i think she has a perfectly fine life on the farm and like yeah sometimes you get dealt a shit hand like you don't no one wants to live through uh, a pandemic and a war and yes. that sucks but the way that she is obsessed with getting off the farm and becoming famous and things i i don't see that as sympathetic honestly in the slightest and, and maybe mm-hmm. i'm wrong about that and I, i'm interested to see your uh perspective on it um but I I don't see Pearl as sympathetic at all, to be honest. Mm-hmm. What about you? I... It's difficult because, in part, I do kind of feel sympathetic to her. Like, I understand 
that she wants to be special, right? Like she says, farm life may be it for you, but it ain't for me. I'm mm-hmm. special. One day the whole world's going to know my name. And, you know, I can empathize with having these big dreams, like mm-hmm. these big hopes for having, you know, fame and to be special. And it really reminds me of Chicago, if you've ever seen Chicago with like Roxy Hart, where like she just wants to be famous. That's all she wants. She wants to be loved by many people. Mm. And I mean, you can see from Pearl that, you know, her wanting this love for many people is in direct um, contrast to the lack of love that she feels from her family. Mm. So she's really just craving something that she's missing. But I guess she's not entirely sympathetic because, again, we see Pearl commit these kind of like little atrocities. Like at first when she stabs the goose and feeds the goose to the alligator. Mm-hmm. And then as we watch how she treats the animals and as she treats other people and especially how she treats her mother. It's yeah, she, I, I she's a very complicated character, but not super sympathetic. OK, I agree with that. But I think. I think we can relate a little to Pearl because I'd say most people have some sort of deviancy and Mm. they probably feel different because of that deviancy, whether they've, you know, been socialized or taught, especially that like their sexuality is sinful. Like Pearl really puts, puts a voice to how she feels about her sins And I think a lot of us can empathize with that of like feeling like we've committed some sort of sin or something at some point. Mm. But yeah, she's not an entirely empathetic character. No, 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 no. Like she, Pearl, I think when she makes her first murder, which is like the murder of her mother. Yeah. I think that's when you like lose the sympathy for her. And it's like, okay, she locks her mother in the basement instead of trying to help her. And then like, what really seals the deal for me is her killing her invalid father. Yeah, I, um, when it came to, like, the beef between Pearl and her mother, I was fully on Ruth's side. Um, and, yeah. like, an aspect that we didn't talk about is that her parents are uh, German immigrants, and they're farmers. Yes. And so you get the sense that they have had a difficult life. They They left Germany at some point, we don't know when, presumably before Pearl was born, so, you know couple decades before mm-hmm. let's say and uh they've they've made their way to america they've scraped out a living farming in texas not an easy life to be living for sure yeah, um no. and and she remarks that like we, she doesn't get into it but we know that the locals are do not like them that that they treat german farmers like them uh in a in an unfavorable way so mm-hmm. Her life is one of, you know, duty and sacrifice and hardship. And she sees Pearl, who wants to be famous and thinks that this farm isn't good enough for her. And, you know, she has bigger dreams. And I think that that's a really familiar type of conflict, right? Like, we've seen that in movies and books and stuff before. It's like, oh, I'm a I'm a kid with big dreams and I want to be a star one day, but I've got this cruel, witchy mother who doesn't want me to succeed at those things. And... I almost think that this movie is like we're seeing that from the other side of things where it's like I am a parent who, yeah. has, who has like had to fight really hard for what I have. And my daughter is so ungrateful and um, and and like 
wicked, right, in her own way. Yeah. Um, and she has this baller line where she says, uh, when, when you leave and come back and you feel like a failure, I want you to remember that feeling because that's how I feel every time I look at you. Um, mm, yeah. Which is so cold. Uh, but, like, Ruth doesn't take any shit. Like, she sees through Pearl 100% and is just like, I know that you are a cruel person. I know what you do to the animals. Like, that's kind of a, a killer reveal <laughs> partway through the movie, like, right before she dies. Yeah. Uh, and Pearl, I think, has this, like, rampant american sense of like selfish individualism that is completely counter to Mm -hmm. the life that that ruth has tried to pave for her um so i mean i think i agree with you that yeah i can empathize with pearl and having these big dreams and there's a line where she says something about it's not what i want anymore it's not about what i want anymore it's about making the best of what i have and yeah I, I think most people have to come to that conclusion at some point right everyone at some point is a kid with big dreams who has to realize that you're not going to be a singer or a dancer or an astronaut or a, or a hockey player or whatever it is um mm-hmm. but pearl is simply unable to deal with that and <laughs> murders because she she has yeah. a breakdown over it yeah, well, it's Ruth who first says that, right, about making do with what you have. Yeah. So we get this kind of character growth from Pearl when eventually she realizes, oh, shit, you know, I'm not going to be famous. You know, she doesn't get the spot in the dancing troupe. And she starts turning over to the side of her mother. Like, she does start to understand, oh, shit, maybe my mother was right of, like, I just need to make do with what I have. So we get that tiny bit of character growth amongst all the murder. Uh, yeah, I mean, it, it's interesting, too, because, like, when I'm talking about this obsession with fame and stuff, like, that is something that carries over throughout both movies, right? Like, Maxine mm-hmm. has this line that she repeats a few different times where she says, I will not accept a life I do not deserve. Um, mm-hmm. and, and her dad says that, the televangelist, her father, says that on the TV as well, which is really interesting, and I cannot wait to see how we follow that up in the sequel. Um, but Wayne yeah. also says, it, it, Wayne also says, I don't want to have to make a living wearing a hard hat. Which, like, again, I think most people at some point have to come to terms with, like, hey, you might have to work a normal person job. <laughs> like, sorry, that's the way it is. Yeah. You you might, in fact, be a normal person. You might not be this, like, shining star that you thought you were going to be as a kid. And maybe, you know, maybe what people deserve from life is a, a normal existence. You know, being a farmer, or a construction mm-hmm. worker, or a teacher, or, like, a normal job. Um, and and this, these movies are full of people who simply cannot accept that. Um, which is fine. Yeah. Like, you know, everyone deserves to have the life that they, to, to work towards having the life that they imagine for themselves. And I, I won't take that away from anyone and I won't judge anyone for that. Um, but I do yeah. just find it interesting how Pearl is, and, and, you know, a few different people to varying levels of degrees are not willing to accept um, a provincial life, a, a, a normal everyday life. Yes. Um, yes. Yeah. They dream of something so much more. And I love this comment that you have here in our notes that Pearl is, for all intents and purposes, a Gen Z kid. Can you expand on that? Yeah, well, okay, so I mentioned, like, it, it, that's mostly about the sense of individualism. And I want to be clear that, like, yeah. I, I am not <laughs> trying to, like, 
be a boomer here and say like, oh, it's the kids today and they're all self-obsessed because I think most young people are in every generation mm-hmm. and that's fine. But it's the way that she had to live through, you know, this this plague in this war and like these really trying times uh, throughout her youth. And that obviously is going to have an impact on a person. Um, but she has this obsession with fame. And I think that like... yeah the last few generations and you could say this about millennials of course as well and even some of the younger parts of gen x and and younger boomers and things but like uh fame is sort of sold to young people in an interesting way like maybe i think you could even go back to like the 50s and 60s with this the way that fame is sold Mm -hmm. to us and that like like i'm saying like the these these dreams it's totally okay for young people to have dreams but i think there's this sense of like you are an individual. You are better than all the people around you. And someday everyone's going to see that. You're going to be the star that comes out of your town and you're going to be right. And everyone else around you who makes you feel small right now is going to be wrong. Um, And Mm -hmm. it leads to people who are not able to see success as anything other than like excessive, like I am a household name and everyone loves me and I get love from all these strangers at all times. And that's not a healthy way to see the world. Um, Bo Burnham... Bo Burnham had like the comedian had a, a really uh, poignant way of phrasing this. And I can't remember exactly how he said it, but he, like basically fame is being sold to young people all of the times, uh, all of the time. And now in the age of social media, they are being told constantly like here, go perform for each other all of the time, everything yes. about yourself. Like it's no longer a surveillance state. Everyone is just giving away aspects of themselves for free. And I think, Pearl would have thrived in the age of TikTok. <laughs> like, oh God, she would have doing her silly little dances and things for the camera. Like it's, it's just this, it's, it's mostly in the way. And I, again, I don't want to disparage Gen Z in particular. I think this is a thing with every generation of young people, this, this sense of individualism. Mm-hmm. Um, but I think corporations have gotten better and better at manipulating that desire for, for attention uh, I was going to say for love yeah. and fame, but like for attention, it's, it's, we've created an economy and a society that is so obsessed with attention and willing to do anything to get it. And Pearl is like the shining star of that. Yes. I, I do find. Very well said. Thank you. I, I do find uh, Pearl and Maxine to be really interesting foils for each other though, because like mm-hmm. they're both, they both want fame in that exact same way. Right. They both are like, I want to be a star. And, and everyone's going to know my name. I think they both say that at some point. Um, yeah. But Pearl, her breakdown is largely because her skills are not what she perceives them to be. Like, she does this dance, and we didn't even talk about the dance sequence, but, oh my god, like, <laughs> phenomenal. When she goes in auditions and she's, like, fantasizing, like, a whole chorus line full of soldiers and explosions and stuff are going on around her. Um, <laughs> but Maxine, meanwhile, like, before she shoots her porn scene she hears a voice in her head that tells her that she's not good enough so like really Mm -hmm. to me the key difference between them is their sense their differing levels of self-confidence and repression um maxine's confidence is not very high but she also doesn't have any repression at all meanwhile pearl her confidence is like narcissistic level but she's so so repressed that she can't really access certain parts of herself that she that she wants to uh inhabit yeah i think i find them very interesting and like it's really drawn out by the fact that like mia goth plays both maxine and pearl Mm -hmm. and so that really draws out their parallels quite nicely as well 
there's like there's so many parallels between them and like yeah obviously not not least among them that they're portrayed by the same person um Mm -hmm. but like the way that they mirror lines like i think they both they both say that they're a star they both say the whole world's gonna know their name um and what i find the most interesting is you notice what uh what maxine did to pearl after she right before she hits her with the van what did she do she shushed her she's lying there on the ground oh yeah with her finger which is exactly what Pearl did to several of the people she killed, including the Scarecrow. She did it to the Scarecrow first. <laughs> um, yeah. Yeah. She, they're, uh, uh, they're, they're very, very interesting characters, almost the same person in a way. And they are portrayed by the same person. Um, just with mm-hmm. like a few different personality, uh, like, I don't know, details. Um, I do. I I think it's interesting too because Maxine ends the movie with a new sense of violent empowerment and righteousness, and uh, her father prays on the TV that she returns home. And my feeling, and I haven't like read this or seen this or heard this anywhere, but my feeling is that the next movie is going to be about her confronting her dad somehow. Ooh, I hope so. That yeah. would be fun. It seems like it's set in the '80s, so we don't. It could be like you know a year later, or it could be ten years later. We have no idea. Mm-hmm. Um, but I'm excited to see what happens. And I think like the Hollywood sign. There's sorry. The, there's one trailer for it right now, which is just a 22 second clip of the Hollywood sign, but it spells out Maxine with three X's. So I think she is going to be a star and like inhabit this uh, this life of fame that she and Pearl dreamed about. Um, and I'm really excited to see what happens, like when she gets everything that she wants, which is what I think will happen. Yeah, and to see the downfall of what happens when you do get everything you want and what star power does to people. Because we already see with Maxine that she's, like, abusing drugs and, like, doing cocaine. So I can only imagine that will get worse and worse as she gains fame. Totally. And, okay, we'll move on to talking about, like, porn and repression and things because that's a huge theme. But the last thing I want to say on Pearl's obsession with fame is, uh, like, there's a subset of fans online who called the movie Pearl um, Joker for girls, uh, which I find hilarious. Oh. <laughs> yeah. Like uh, she kind of is a similar archetype of character. I would say to Arthur Fleck from Joker. Like she believes she's so put upon and she, it's, you know, uh, it's her right and her duty to take revenge upon the world that, that spurned her. Yeah. But what the, I think is really interesting is she seems to believe that she's the only one who knows what it's like to suffer. And uh, yeah, during her monologue uh, to um, Mitzi? Mitzi. During her monologue to Mitzi, she says, like, that she killed her mom and the projectionist because she wants them to to know what it's like to suffer like she does. And again, we've been over her mom's background. Her mom knows suffering. Yeah. Pardon me. Objectively, Um, she knows suffering. (laughs) And we don't really know much about the projectionist's life, but, you know... What, who who has had a life without any hardship? Uh, so she exactly. she takes it out on she takes out her her impotent rage on her mother and the projectionist and her father and Mitzi, and she has this like again narcissistic belief that she's the only one who knows what it's like to suffer. Uh, and I I think it's really interesting that she is sort of a parallel of a lot of sort of nihilistic movie characters. Like you can see her as something akin to the Joker, or the taxi driver, or um, mm-hmm. what have you. Uh, she's yeah, she's an edgelord type character, uh, a Patrick Bateman, if you will, but maybe the first one I've ever seen that's a woman, which is kind of interesting. 
Which is very interesting, yes. Like, usually this role is resigned to, like, male characters. Mm -hmm. So it's interesting to finally get, you know, the narcissistic female character. Yeah. Uh, Like, she... Pearl is a beloved character online as well for, like, a lot of different reasons. And I'm I'm totally... I'm very glad that she's, like, getting this... (laughs) I'm here for it. A hundred percent. Um... So I, I want to go on to talk about like porn and repression and respectability. And this, this ties into the last theme that we were talking about as well. Um, but in my opinion, the way that like the porn star posse throughout X, they talk about how everyday folks regard them as, as sexual deviants and, and sort of reject their way of life. But, you know, they're here for a good, for a good time, not a long time. And they want to live life exactly on their terms and uh, mm-hmm. not hide any aspect of themselves. And to me, that really directly resembles the way that queer people are perceived by, you know, general society, straight society. Uh, and and they have to learn to navigate respectability a lot of the time if they want to have a public life. Um, and uh, yeah, I, I just found that really interesting. It I don't think any of the characters are explicitly queer, except maybe Pearl with the way that she sort of caresses uh, Maxine. Um, yes. Actually, no, because... Howard seems to acknowledge that she likes women, right? Because she says, like, oh, is she the one? And she goes, you know I don't like blondes. So I guess... Oh, yeah. Maybe Pearl is the only explicitly queer character in this universe so far. But yeah, anyway, my main point being that I think the porn star posse really, like, their discussion about the way that the public perceives them really mirrors the way that uh, queer communities have to act in quote-unquote polite society. Yeah, because, I mean, both are kind of deviants, right? And Mm -hmm. these are deviants because of sexuality, and so are queer people. Mm -hmm. So it really is sex and sexuality that, like, they need to navigate in this kind of respectable world. I find it so interesting because we talk about, you know, like, again, both both you and I are people with a a sociology background. And we talk about social Mm -hmm. constructs a a lot, right? And how um, things like gender are a social construct and things like race are a social construct. There's, you know, uh, things like phenotype, like physical characteristics that go into race, but race is something that changes over time due to social, uh, like just social factors, right? Like, um, yes. Italian people at one point in, in the history of North America and Europe were not seen as white and now they are. Um, because just at some point the window shifts and what is seen as, uh, you know, acceptable to the mainstream just sort of changes it up every once in a while. Uh, and I find mm-hmm. it interesting because in this time, yeah, people who were just going around having completely consensual adult sex with each other were seen as sexual deviants. Uh, and nowadays that's a ridiculous thought and they're totally not. Mm-hmm. But like, I, I just find that, you know, and... Uh, I'm bad at remembering character names. What's her name? Betsy Lynn? Bobby Lynn. Um, Bobby Lynn. Bobby Lynn has this whole speech where she says it doesn't matter if you're queer or straight or black or white or whatever. Uh, But about how they are seen as deviants in this way that is exactly how queer people are seen as deviants. Um, Mm -hmm. And at some point the window will shift and their way of life will become more respected. uh, But still not like 100% fully respected in the mainstream. Uh, I just find that really interesting, that parallel. I don't know. What it, you, did you did you interpret that the same way I did? Yeah, I mean, I I I 
Yes, yes, <laughs> yes. Um, <laughs> Perfect. <laughs> I, I think it's quite interesting that, like, Bobby Lynn really, get, like, hits the nail on the head with her comment there. And, like, there is this kind of theme of them wanting to be respectable. Like, um, for example, uh, RJ, he's all about making you know, this dirty movie into a piece of cinema. Like he says, it's possible to make a good dirty movie and mm-hmm. I'm not treating it as pornography, but as cinema. And he's trying to take something that is yeah. not very respectable, which is this deviant sexu- sexuality and like having sex and like filming sex. And he's trying to make it this respectable thing by making it artsy and artful. Yeah, a hundred percent. I I thought like RJ was a really interesting character in that way. The way that he is so adamant mm-hmm. about the possibility of a uh, you know making a good dirty mer- movie that is cinema, um, and the way that he sort of roped Lorraine into this, like his young girlfriend. Which it's not yeah. really clear how old, but uh, RJ is said to be twenty three, and if Lorraine is the same age as Jenna Ortega, then she's like nineteen or twenty. Um, yeah. So she at first objects to being roped into making a porn without her prior knowledge. And she's like offended. And she's like, this is smut. And then she eventually agrees to be in the movie, which like causes RJ to freak out. So it's interesting because RJ is revealed to actually be more of a prude than he thinks he is, at least in this world. Yeah. He, I, I find yeah, him an because... interesting character. He's a straight up hypocrite. Um, <laughs> oh, totally. Cause in, in one aspect, he's really like, you know, oh, there's not, there's nothing wrong with making this movie, and he's completely right about that. Uh, and then, but he's also like not willing to. He Lorraine says she wants to be in the movie, and he says no. <laughs> and he he mm-hmm. tries to assert himself in this very like patriarchal masculine way, where he's just like, oh no, you can't do that. You're not doing that. Um, which mm-hmm. is totally not the vibe for this social group at all, <laughs> and. No one seems to be cool with her telling her that she can't do something. Um, and so she does follow through with it, which is, I find, very interesting. Yeah, because, I mean, right, we have the direct contrast to RJ, which is Wayne, who's, mm-hmm. like, very comfortable with his girlfriend having sex with someone else. Yeah. Com- it's for the camera. Completely. Um, I really loved the line, and it's not really relevant to anything else we're talking about, but when Wayne says to RJ... Um, you've never been 41, but I have been 23. So let me tell you something. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) That was just such a, like, I, the way that Wayne talks just, I was obsessed with it the whole time. Um, which by the way, like one thing I wanted to say is that like, uh, what's his name? The guy who plays Wayne, Martin Henderson. I think his performance as Wayne is extremely important to the, the cons, the movie working. Um, yeah, because, I think Wayne has to not come across as like a sketchy dude at all. Um, Yeah, he couldn't be skeevy. Like he seems like to be a genuine guy. If he came across even the littlest bit skeevy or sketchy or anything like that or creepy, then Maxine would be seen as someone who is being taken advantage of and yes like roped into this and she's totally not like she is definitely choosing to be in this industry and make this movie completely of her own volition she's she is uh 
you know, like she is a completely empowered woman. She is a, a, a third wave feminist's worst nightmare uh, with the way that she, <laughs> <laughs> um, with with the way that she's like willing to be in this porn and is empowered by it, uh, by her sexuality. Mm. And I, I think that's like the key difference between her and Pearl, right? Is that like, uh, they both want to be stars, but Maxine's goal is to do so using her sexuality but Pearl's sexuality is something that is, is perhaps scary and shameful to her and, and causes a lot of conflict. Not so with Maxine. Um, mm-hmm. And I think if Wayne came across, yeah, like I said, the slightest bit sketchy, he came across like warm and businesslike. You could tell that he had been like reading businessman books or like, like you know what I mean? Like, yeah, he, he delivered some of these lines where he's like negative thinking leads to negative results. <laughs> uh, I found him really warm and endearing. And if, if he didn't come across that way, the movie wouldn't work because Maxine would be seen as, I think would come across as uh, like coerced or a victim in some way. Yes. Yes. I agree. He really is kind of the, the pin and the pivoting point of the film. And he does a great job of anchoring it into this, kind of authentic experience of these people they want to make some extra cash and they want to do something that will immortalize them and they want to find this bit of fame and so this is how they're doing it through very consenting a very communicated and a very like honest um way by making this porn film that in mind i want to talk about also the projectionist because I kind of think the projectionist kind of mirrors Wayne and RJ almost in a way. Um, yes. What did you think of the projectionist? Uh, what What's your take on him? Because I could not, even on a second viewing, I don't know what to make of him as a character. I think you could either see him as someone who is sort of trying to take advantage of Pearl or as someone who is, you know, an artist who wants to do the same type of work that... Uh, Pearl, Pearl, that RJ and Wayne do. Um, Because he Mm -hmm. sees this stag movie and he's all about how, like, the art scene in Europe is so free and you can be whoever you want to be and that's where I want, what I want to do and you should totally go to Europe after the pandemic. And then he says to Pearl, you could be in one of these movies, you know, if you wanted to and you're totally pretty enough and all of that. So, what did you think did you think he was preying on pearl or do you think he saw her as like an artistic contemporary who maybe he could you know make some good quality movies with i i'm i'm kind of torn about his character like it could be seen as like he definitely does approach pearl in wanting to get with her and you can tell by some of the comments he makes like you know live a free life and like oh, you know, you're pretty enough to be in one of these pictures. Like, he's definitely putting the moves on her. Mm-hmm. Like, he, this this guy's got game, and his game is that porn film, and, like, trying to seduce Pearl. But I think he also is an interesting representation, because he even calls himself a bohemian, right? <laughs> yeah. And he represents this lifestyle that wasn't so popular in the early 20th century, um which is kind of being someone who's you know going against status quo like he the projectionist what's his name johnny or something bobby yeah 
Johnny. Uh, we're, we're not Johnny. 100% sure. She says au revoir, poor Johnny, as she pushes his corpse into the river. Um, um, but beyond that, we don't get any hint. So his name may or may not be Johnny. But uh, in oh, the right, cast oh, list, right. he's known as the projectionist. <laughs> okay, yeah. So our projectionist, like, I think he's showing us another kind of deviant lifestyle, which is being mm. a bohemian, right? Like, mm. he doesn't... I guess he has a steady job as a projectionist, but he seems like he'll leave that job at the drop of a hat. And, like, he he has deviant films, you know, but at least he did serve in the war, so he's got that under his buckle. But he's he's definitely a deviant character, and, you know okay sleeping with someone's wife and yep he did know she was married (laughs) so yeah yeah so he's he's a bit of a deviant character on his own i i find him so fascinating because yeah we truly have no idea uh also interesting note mia goth said that she interprets it as that the projectionist is a figment of pearl's imagination um Ooh. which is fair because he never does uh interact with anyone else outside of her but i'm just generally never a fan of those types of theories where xyz is just a figment of the main character's imagination i know we do have um an unreliable narrator in pearl but yes i just i'm generally not a fan of those types of theories i prefer to believe that that all actually happened i don't know I hadn't even thought of that. That's an interesting perspective, though, to, like, see him as a figment of her imagination. Because then... Yeah, no, because then she doesn't cheat on her husband, but she does imagine it, which, I mean, she does with the Scarecrow as well, right? Yeah, which... And she sees his face on the Scarecrow as well. Yes. So, um... I think it's, yeah, the story takes on a very, very interesting, different meaning if, you know, this man is actually more the devil on her shoulder than uh, a real man. Yes. Um, I gotta say, too, like, I thought that character, just the the dude who played him in the performance, just an absolute specimen. Like, that that dude was fine (laughs) in this movie. Um, Since our movies are from such different time periods, I think they show the expression of sexuality in very different ways like in Mm -hmm. 1918 pearl is expressing her sexuality through dance whereas in 1979 maxine and bobby lynn are expressing their sexuality through having sex on camera you know Mm -hmm. and i feel like the picture show of like dancing is actually pretty similar to the porno but it's just like 60 70 years difference yeah, definitely. Um, I, I find that interesting to think of, yeah, that that's their different ways of expressing themselves because uh, you can tell that Pearl is not able to express herself through dance the way that she wants to because, like, mm-hmm. again, this dance sequence where she's imagining, like, bombs going off around her and all this stuff, like, the things that she seems to want to express really can't be expressed through dance. And, I mean, yeah. sorry, they can. Like, I don't mean to... I'm not, like... putting down the entire art form um but it's just her imagination goes so far beyond an actual dance performance and it really seems like 
there is a missing piece to it. Like she has something that just she cannot express going on within mm-hmm. her. Um, and I think that like reflects upon her repression, right? Like she, um, she, she's limited by her art form and by her capabilities within that art form. And it, yeah. it's really clear that, yeah, the things that she's trying to deal with through dance, which by the way, we never really see her dance until this performance. Like she does her little like, yeah, la 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 swinging around the, with the squ- scarecrow and uh, in the barn with the cows and stuff. But like, we never see her try and practice a routine. Uh, <laughs> no. And so this is literally the first time we see it. So she sees herself as an artist and having this medium, but she never really works on it. Um, yeah, it she never seems- practices. It, it, never and so it just really and at one point she tells the projectionist she has to practice and then just doesn't uh yeah <laughs> so it seems clear that like she wants this to be her art form but it is just not something that will ever she'll never be able to achieve uh the expression expression that she wants to through dance yeah like she doesn't want to be a dancer she wants to be famous like that's it and she doesn't really care how she gets famous as long as she does get famous. And, like, dancing is just a route through which she can become famous. Yeah. Whereas I think Maxine, you know, like like, like I said earlier, I think porn is exactly what she wants to be doing. Like, I, yes. I don't think that, again, I don't think she was roped into this. I don't think this is a decision that was made for her. We do see her using drugs, which is, like, definitely a real thing within within that industry like mm-hmm. people do that to cope at times which is uh n- not good obviously don't, probably don't need to say that um yeah i think that's understood but she truly seems to be like loving what she does and good at what she does everyone seems to be blown away by her performance and it really seems like it's a path to stardom for her that is like viable and agreeable to mm-hmm. her uh and I, I just think that's, like, another very interesting difference between the two. Um, I thought, like, the, the movie itself, too, like, the, the porn film that they made. I guess there's two, right? There's the, the stag film from 1918. And then there's yes. uh, the Farmer's Daughter movie that the gang is there to create. Uh, and I think it's an interesting mm-hmm. sort of meta commentary on film. Uh, because we, we oh. talk about, you know, the sexual deviancy that uh the gang is experiencing even though not all of them are explicitly queer um yes there's also like i I thought it was interesting like both rj and the projectionist are you know kind of obsessed with this idea that like porn is seen as smut and it's not seen as quality but we are here to make a good smut film and we believe it can be done if you use these avant-garde techniques and the european tradition and all of these things um Mm -hmm. There's an interesting parallel, I think, to horror movies a couple of times, right? Like, uh, Lorraine says she wants to be in the movie, and RJ is like, that wouldn't make any sense. You'd have to change the plot the whole way through, and it just isn't done. And Lorraine is like, well, they do that in Psycho, and you love that movie. And he's like, Mm -hmm. that is a horror film? And it's a MacGuffin to build suspense. And he he kind of like go, gets up on his film bro high horse. But I think it's kind of interesting because I think a parallel is drawn between horror and smut. And we've talked about sort of like 
uh, you know, torture porn and gore and stuff like that, where horror is also sort of seen as like second tier types of films where it is seen as pornographic in a lot of ways. And uh, yeah. the way that RJ is adamant that you can make a good smut film, I think like uh, this movie is one of the best examples of a good horror or a good slasher that I've ever seen. Like the loving detail that they put into the gore. We've already talked about it. But yeah, <laughs> the the scenes of like uh, Mitzi being chopped up and the axe being like and the shot is mirrored and the axe goes through the flesh and it's very clean and the white of the skin and the red of the blood. Oh, it's beautiful. It's gorgeous. It's truly like so I, I think it's an interesting parallel between the good smut film and the the truly artful you know slasher movie that they've made and i think it's an interesting way of presenting the film within the film that way uh you know to Mm -hmm. to use the shakespeare reference yes i love how we have films within films it makes it a very interesting commentary yeah on on film itself but also on the horror yeah um i i did see some film history nerds online uh commenting that pearl would not have been able to go see uh that musical movie that she originally went to see in 1918 oh really yeah because movies with synchronized video and audio weren't a thing until like the 20s so (laughs) that that was an anachronism uh and as well the missing person on the milk carton was also an anachronism that didn't start happening until a few years later but i i don't give a shit whatever who cares um, yeah, whatever. It's good movie. <laughs> uh, one last thing I wanted to say on that actually as well is you talked about how, you know, like the the porn posse seems to be making a movie in this way that is very consenting and, and uh, yes, like they, they go about it in a way that no one seems to be taking advantage of each other. Uh, one thing that, that movies have been doing more and more recently within the last couple decades is having intimacy coordinators uh, on set. So, you know, there, there's a specific uh, crew member who is there, spe- like, whenever scenes of intimacy are happening, um, whether it's violence or whether it's sex, to make sure that everyone is communicating in a healthy way and that everyone stays comfortable mm-hmm. and that, you know, just just everything can stay uh, professional and, and cordial and everything while getting, you know, an intimate experience to come through authentically on film. Um so the, the intimacy coordinator on X, her name was, uh, I say, I'm sorry, is, not was, current tense. Uh, the intimacy coordinator on X, her name is Tandy Wright. Uh, and while they were filming X, you know, they were starting to put together pre-production for uh, Pearl. And Tandy Wright ended up getting cast as Pearl's mother because of some of the conversations that Ty West and Mia Goth were having. Um, really? She, yeah, so, so she was... Yeah, the intimacy coordinator on X and then an actor, one of the main actors in Pearl. Um, And she learned German to do this role. She learned it like really quickly, like within the span of a few weeks or months, I believe. Yeah. And she like perfected the accent to the to the point that there was a couple of German crew members on set who believed that she was a native German speaker. Um, Wow. Which, like, I for sure did when I was watching the movie. I, I definitely thought that was, like... Yeah, me too. ...person who speaks native German. But no, she learned it on set of X and then used it to shoot Pearl. That's amazing. And that's yeah. cool that she's the intimacy coordinator. 
Yeah, and I mean, she. I, I think like a movie like that needed one because there was so much. <laughs> there was so much sex in that movie. Um, so much. Yeah, it and just really well done, and it's really nice to hear that. Um, you know the the people like the creatives from from of uh, from all aspects of this movie in front of the camera and behind the camera you can really feel the amount of input it feels like everyone got into the movie you know mm. like i think the fact that there was an intimacy coordinator on on set i think like her work shines through i don't you know i couldn't tell you yes. what an intimacy coordinator actually does but the intimacy in the movie I, i'm really having trouble pronouncing that word the intimacy in that movie is really <laughs> well done right like yeah it feels like you can tell when people are acting and when they're not and uh i um really enjoyed it i think they all did great work i think so too it came across as very genuine and authentic the um well as authentic as it can be for a porno (laughs) yeah of course for like a low budget late 70s porn um yes Brittany Snow, who, who played Bobby Lynn, she had a great quote, which uh, I unfortunately don't have in front of me right now. But she talked about how, like, you know, she knew that she was playing a character who obviously would be very comfortable with her sexuality and with being naked on camera and stuff. And she talked about how making this movie was a great exercise in confidence because she needed to very quickly become very comfortable with her body and with, like, performing mm-hmm. sexuality on camera, which is, like, almost certainly not an easy adjustment to make. Um, so, yeah, yeah no. just... It's very evident that uh, a lot of people did really good work to, to make that happen throughout the movie. Yeah, a lot of really good effort went into making both of these movies, into making X and Pearl. 100%. Um, okay, we were talking about the special effects, and there's one more thing that I wanted to say. Uh, one, we, we called out a lot of the moments that were done really well. Um Mm-hmm. One piece of editing that was so noticeable and so, so well done. Uh, when Wayne was killed, we mentioned that he was, like, stabbed through the eye uh, in, like, the, the knot hole in the barn boards. Um, so that scene is played for, like, the the right amount of tension, right? That's something that's pretty familiar to mm-hmm. a slasher movie. He's like, oh, there's movement out there. Let me poke my eye in that hole. We all know what's about to happen to his <laughs> poor eye. Um, and so <laughs> I think as the viewer, we're kind of watching that scene and we're kind of squirming. And then, oh, yep, of course, a pitchfork comes through that hole and goes into his eye. And you go, oh, no. And then, you know, we cut to another scene and uh, Jenna Ortega is... Uh, having a scene with Howard where they're talking about how she needs to go find Pearl and he's worried that she might have broken her hip. And then that scene is like in the middle of happening and then we just smash cut back to Wayne and the pitchfork is being pulled back out of the eye. And I thought that was amazing because they didn't give you a chance to look away that time. Like Mm -hmm. anyone who's squeamish knew to cover their eyes while when he was about to be stabbed and then you didn't get the option on the second time all of a sudden you're just watching it be pulled violently back out and his eyeball pop out of his head um oh which is great incredible stuff he's also one of uh pretty much everyone's death was foreshadowed at some point um he mentioned something about how when when people watch the movie their eyes are going to pop out of their heads um oh yeah yeah Jackson made a comment about how when he was in Vietnam, he had enough farmers pointing guns at him. Uh, what, um, 
with uh, Bobby Lynn. Her, there's two names. It's even harder to remember. With Bobby Lynn, as they're walking out of the uh, burlesque club at the beginning, there's an alligator pulling off a blonde girl's bathing suit. Um, oh, yeah. And uh, H- Howard says to, uh, to Lorraine that he's worried about Pearl falling and breaking her hip, which she does before she gets run over with the van. Um, mm-hmm. So, yeah, there's like a ton of foreshadowing, which is really, really cool. I didn't even pick up on most of that. Good job, Jake. I did not either. That was from the internet. <laughs> oh, thank you, internet. All right. <laughs> um, okay, one thing. Before we introduce the next movie that we're going to talk about, um, one question that I have yes. for you is, I feel like repression has come up through a lot of the movies that we've talked about. Like, mm. it came up in... The Lighthouse. I'm just looking through our list of movies right now. It came up in The Lighthouse. It came up in American Psycho. It came up in The Haunting, The Covenant, Jennifer's Body, uh, Killer Unicorn, Rocky Horror Picture Show, Texas Chainsaw Massacre. The list goes on and on. Um, Why do you think... uh, Black Swan, certainly. uh, Why do you think repression is such a common theme in horror movies? Why do you think so many horror movies are about repression? Mm. That's a really good question. I ooh, I would stipulate that it's because repression is something everyone experiences every single day of their life. Mm. Um, it's kind of an automatic thing that is given to you by society is the gift of repression. <laughs> um, whether it be sexual repression, gender repression, whether it be economic repression mm. or something physical i don't know but regardless everyone feels repression and that's a very like everyday horror and so it's a very relatable feeling of being repressed so it's a way to connect with your audience in any and every horror movie is with that daily dose of horror which is repression what what are your thoughts on it i like i totally agree i think like for me there's, I, I think like the most common themes, if I had to, you know, go off the top of my head, it would be like repression, grief, and trauma. Like, I feel like every yes. horror movie oh, is yes. about one or more of those things. Um, and like, you know, we talked about the Babadook, which is all about grief and like hereditary is all about grief. Um, mm-hmm. And repression is one of those things like, like those other two feelings that follows you around all the time. Like, if you are yes. convinced that whatever, like, you know, we can talk about religious sexual repression, because that's the easy one, right? If you believe that, like, your sexual desires are something that is fundamentally wrong with you and you need to change them mm-hmm. or else you will be cursed to an eternity in hell, um, then you're you're going to constantly be feeling like you're self-monitoring and that, like, oh my God, what if I'm bad? And what if this thing that lives inside of me is something that I can't control? And that's going to feel like you're being possessed by a demon or something. Um, Which I think is also the exact parallel that the televangelist draws, right? Like there's so much fear mongering uh, from repressive agents that is is explicitly sort of bred into you uh, by large Mm -hmm. portions of society. So I feel like, yeah, that feeling like, it's something that you cannot escape from, right? Like if you if you don't just sort of give in to whatever your uh, wh- whatever your your predilection is, 
and just accept it the way mm-hmm. that the the posse does and the way that a lot of characters do eventually if you don't just own your sexuality or or whatever it happens to be um it's going to end up being something that is like consuming and and uh like you have to constantly be vigilant for and yeah humans as sort of uh you know people who i think we're as as animals that used to live in the wild we're conditioned to run away from things that scare us and i think it's just a natural connection to turn those like constant personal fears into an actual physical threat through the power of story yeah and they do that through such clever symbolism oh well i absolutely love these movies i think uh they're they're so well done like i said easily two of my favorite movies of the year like not even just using the qualifier of horror movies they're just so so good um do you have any sort of parting thoughts about x and pearl before we talk about our next movie i think it was it was fun to watch them in the opposite order they were released yeah so to go into x already knowing the background of pearl and like what she's been through i thought that was really fun but also seeing it in the reverse was very fun as well so like highly recommend watching them in whichever order you may please but i i i loved i i loved (laughs) both of these movies so much and like i i definitely agree there for my top movies of the year yeah, that's a really interesting point that you make because, yeah, Pearl being a, a prequel, it's not like you can spoil the events of X by watching Pearl. So you, mm-hmm. you truly could watch them in either order. It, it does not matter. Um, I, I love that about them. And they both work as a standalone movie. They don't need each other, but they enrich each other. They don't other. need each other, yeah. Um, and so it's just it, ugh, everything about it. Just genius. I feel like I'm going to be watching really closely for everything that both Ty West and mia goth do mia uh, goth. yeah in the near future and knowing that they've got at least one more movie in this series coming out that they'll be making together is um just like i feel like that's gonna be my most anticipated movie of the next couple of years i don't know when that's slated to come out if it's i want to say it's this year like 2023 but um yeah i'm hopefully ridiculously excited for the sequel and to see what becomes of maxine after uh after the events of x Um, Yeah, and it's a rare thing that we'll actually get to see a survivor, like a final girl, and see what the rest of her life is going to look like. Yeah, and it's not like it's going to be like the Friday the 13th or Halloween things where, like, she's still going to be fighting Pearl. (laughs) Like, Yeah, no, Pearl's dead. Yeah, and it's kind of cool that we get a finality on Pearl's storyline, too. And we always could get the middle Mm -hmm. movie. We could get that Howard movie that we're looking for, Um, which, you know, I would love to see it. love it but you know we uh we'll we'll get to see what becomes of maxine when she doesn't have pearl to contend with and is it going to be her dad or what what's going to happen who who is going to match the level of lethalities that pearl brought to the scene um we will yeah have, we'll have to wait and see um all right shannon next episode is going to come out right around the holidays so what uh what, what do you what do you think we should watch for for our holiday special all right, I'm thinking we should watch a holiday horror comedy. <laughs> and it, the one we have picked is called Better Watch Out. It was released in 2016. It was written by Zach Kahn and Chris Peckover and directed by Chris Peckover. 
Yeah, and this is a movie that we neither of us have seen. We straight up picked it off of a, a, a list of Christmas horror movies. It's pretty well regarded. Um, we haven't done many horror comedies. I think like Jennifer's Body and then like debatably Rocky Horror <laughs> are kind of the only two. Yeah, um, those are the closest. Yeah. So, I mean, that'll be cool. Like, I think horror and comedy, uh, when one done successfully, they can go together really well. It, I think it can be hard yes. for movies to sort of wield both of those at the same time. Um, so, we'll, we'll see how that turns out. This is probably one of the movies that we've, we're going into knowing the least about it. Like, we both at least knew something about almost all of the other movies we've seen. Um, yeah. Before now. But so. I will say, yeah. my favorite subgenre is horror comedy like i love horror comedy like horror comedy is what got me into horror in the first place oh cool okay what are like what are some of your favorite horror comedies my absolute favorite is a show called scream queens okay it's about like a sorority that is plagued by a serial killer it is so so good that anna versus the or anna and the apocalypse and there's also um, Ready or Not and, like, Tucker and Dale. Oh, I haven't seen it is... any of these. I haven't seen Ready or Not, but I hear it's good. It's very good. It's like a Final Girl movie. I See, I go to, like, Zombieland and, like, Shaun of the Dead when I think of Ooh. horror comedies, too. Which, like, Zombieland... Yes. Oh my god, yes. Zombieland I got for free on my PlayStation 3 when I was like in high school, it was like PlayStation went down, PSN went down for a weekend and they were like, here's a free movie to make up for it. And they gave us Zombieland. Mm -hmm. So like everyone had Zombieland on their PlayStation and I watched it every weekend for, I want to say like 10 weeks in a row. Um, Oh my God. (laughs) Yeah. I, yeah. So I'm with you there. Like horror comedy when it's done well can be a truly enjoyable experience. I also don't know if 26 year old me would love Zombieland as much as like 14 year old me did, but you know, yeah, probably not. <laughs> <laughs> but some movies are made for 14-year-olds and they will always live on in our memories. Yes. <laughs> yes, which is where they belong. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Um, all right, so thanks for uh, thanks for tuning in, everybody, and, and thanks for sticking it out through the break. We've been through... It was nice to have a break. It's, it's been a long time since the people have heard us talk about a horror movie, if you think about it. Yeah, it's been weeks. <laughs> it's been like a month. The last one, it's been like two months. It's been the last really? time. The last time we talked about a horror movie was Saw because we did Matilda and She's the Man uh, in the <gasps> oh, middle. Right. <laughs> because we did our ill-advised not spooky month uh, for for <laughs> Halloween. Um, and so, yeah, we, we haven't talked about an actual horror movie since Saw, which came out on October 5th. So it's been over two months since the people have heard us talk about a horror movie. On our horror podcast. Wow. <laughs> well, welcome back to listening to horror, folks. Oh, man. Yeah, it was a good break. Uh, I changed careers again, so I'm no longer in that master's program, which is for the better. And uh, I, uh, you know, I think it'll lend to even better podcasting in the near future. So, yay. Yeah. Yay, Jake. Yay. <laughs> <laughs> so, look forward to that. All right, everybody. Yes. Thanks very much for listening. We'll catch up with you in a couple weeks when we talk about um, Better Watch Out. And uh, until then, follow us on Instagram to see what's what's popping. And uh, stay fresh. Stay frishy fresh. <laughs> All right. Take care.